It's great to hear the conversations, and these can, of course, be continued as we meet downstairs for coffee following our service. I want just to lead us in prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is for us to be able to gather this morning to worship you and to hear your word, your word of truth. We rejoice in knowing that through your grace we are members together of one body and share us together in the promise that is in Christ Jesus. We're reminded this morning that whatever our background, we are all one in Christ Jesus and that through faith in him, we may approach your throne of grace with freedom and confidence. We thank you that through our offering this morning, we can support the work of the squeeze as they seek to support families who are having to make the devastating choice between heating and eating. Also, as they seek to help those in short-term financial hardship. We pray for your guidance to those who carry the responsibility for the distribution of these funds. In recent times, Lord, we've seen the devastation to people's lives in many parts of the world through fires, floods, earthquakes, and wars. Many have been bereaved, wounded, and made homeless. We pray for governments, authorities, and agencies as they address the urgent needs of these people with compassion and concern, and where possible, seek the help of aid from other nations. We also pray that Christians in these places will be upheld by you and be enabled to show your love to those around them in these times of extreme need. At this time of year, Lord, we have many new beginnings. There are a number of ministries we would like to bring before you. We pray for our mission partner, Anataza, working with YWAM in Queensland, Australia. We want to thank you for the good mission trip she and the student team had to Fiji and for all the opportunities they had for ministry and for interaction with individuals. We pray that there will be lasting spiritual growth in people's lives as a result of their visit. We pray too for the Bible school as it begins a new year of study and ask that you will guide and bless Anna as she lives in a house with the female students and shares the leadership for the ministry at the college. We do pray that the new intake of students will be blessed and equipped for their future service and ministry as you lead them in their lives. Here also, Lord, it is a time of new beginnings and we do thank you for the returning and new students worshiping with us. We pray for their witness to fellow students and for the ministry of the CU. Will you help and guide the CU committee as they organize different outreach activities? We thank you too for the ministry of Wake in our own church and for those who lead this much appreciated ministry to students week by week. At the same time, Father, we want to pray for those involved in leading and teaching in our youth and children's ministry. May their faithful work and witness bear fruit in the lives of young people. We thank you too this morning for the visit of Krista 
to minister your word to us in a few minutes. We pray that you will just uh, speak to each one of us through, through her and bless her as she brings your word. We pray for her strategic ministry through Fusion Scotland as they seek to strengthen the work of churches among students providing tools and giving confidence to churches to love and welcome and disciple students. In closing this morning, our, our time of prayer, we remember those in our fellowship who are unwell, lonely, or concerned about needs within their families. May they be aware of the love and support of the church family and know that their heavenly Father, who knows them intimately, cares and is with them in every circumstance of their lives. Father, we offer up these prayers to you in the worthy name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, and who is interceding for us before your throne of grace this morning. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, our reading this morning is from uh, Roman, the book of Romans, uh, chapter 3, and verses uh, 9 to 20. If you're using a church Bible on the pews, it's page uh, 1130. <clears throat> no one is righteous. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Amen. Hi, my name's Steve Holmes for those I've not met, I'm part of the eldership here, and I've got two 
jobs this morning. One is just to alert you to something that's happening next week, which will be our harvest service. And as we have often done, we're picking up a campaign proposed by Tear Fund. Um, and you'll have seen a, an insert in your bulletin if you've got one. Um, the Tear Fund campaign this year is rubbish. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> they say it's a rubbish campaign and particularly focusing on single-use plastics. And one of the things they're asking us to do is to consider whether there is a way in which we could commit to one act that would reduce our own use of single-use plastics. And you'll see that there's a pledge card that we'll be handing out next week. So just to alert you that that will be coming, those pledge cards will be handed out next week. For some of us, this just won't be the right moment to think about something like that, and that's fine. But, but give it a moment's thought during the week if there's something that you could come ready to promise um, next week. And we'll have lots more to say about that campaign next week. My second job is to introduce Krista, um, who's preaching to us today. Now, um, we've been trying to get Krista for about uh, six years. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, we had a date in 2018, um, and uh, that fell apart because at the time we were in pastoral vacancy and, and the search committee wanted to bring someone to preach to us in case he turned out to be of any use. So um, we had to, to stand down Krista and some guy called Abby turned up instead, um, <laughs> uh, which went okay. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so then we had another date um, around about Easter 2020, um, which, um, as you may recall, was a time when suddenly we were all told we weren't allowed to leave our homes, so, so that didn't work. Um, so we set this date, and you know, I've been watching for news of an earthquake or um, <laughs> an asteroid hitting Fife or um, the wolves from Cooper Deer Center escaping, or, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we seem to have got fairly close. <laughs> yeah. Krista, so uh, you and I have known each other for a little while, but um, why don't you um, tell everyone else about who you are, your family, um, where you grew up, what you've done? Yes, um, yeah, so I've known Steve, yeah, a good five, six years now. Um, I'm Krista, I live in Glasgow, I go to Adelaide Place Baptist Church there, and I've been in the city for 18 years, so I moved there to study and have stayed ever since. Um, but yeah, I was born in Bahrain um, because my parents were missionaries, so spent some of my childhood in Saudi Arabia as well. Um, and yeah, my family's been involved in mission for a long, long time, so my great great-grandfather was one of the Cambridge Seven who went to China in the end of the 1800s um, to preach the gospel there to people who had not heard um, about Jesus before, and my family's been involved in mission ever since then, um, each generation of us, um, mostly abroad, and then myself here in Scotland. And um, I guess because of that, I've been very aware of this um, the significance of students um, in sharing the gospel, in mission, in evangelism, um, as that's been part of, yeah, our family story and, and my story from a young age. Um, so, yeah. Great, and so you're here as the um, head of Fusion Scotland. Indeed. Um, so tell us about where that's come from. Um, mm. Yeah, so it kind of started when I was a student myself. I started leading student small groups um, in our city, and I saw God do some great things through that. And then there became an opportunity a couple years after I graduated to become the student worker at the church I was at at the time. And so I did that for eight years. Um, and yeah, so I saw God do lots of great things. And towards the end of that time, I was kind of feeling like, God is calling me to, to something similar, but perhaps beyond um, our church and just our city. Um, and at the same time, so Fusion's been going for uh, about 20, 
25, 27 years. Um, and they'd done bits and bobs in Scotland, but we're really recognizing Scotland is its own country. It's got its own culture and distinctives. The church here is different. The students are different. And so really to serve the church, to serve the students, to reach um, the nation, we should have an expression of fusion that is born and based here. Um, and so that kind of all came around at the same time. And uh, so we gathered some church leaders from across the country. Um, Steve Holmes was there and um, said to them, is this something you would like? Would you like us to um, become a presence more actively in Scotland, to have something that here um, is here to serve you and to reflect the needs of the church um, and the students here? Um, and they said yes. Um, and so, uh, so that's what we did. So um, we set it up. And I should say, uh, Steve's been integral in setting that up. And he's been on the board um, and been absolutely key to that. So we're very grateful to him. And so we've been um, doing that the last five years now. Um, so, so, yeah. so what are you doing? Um, yes, what, what, what are we doing? We doing? <laughs> um, so we are really passionate about the local church in their role to reach and disciple students. We think that's absolutely key, um, both for seeing people come to faith and also seeing them establish in faith that is going to last them not just the time that they're studying, but also for the rest of their lives. And so rather than running groups ourselves, what we do is we equip the church across the country. So looking at all different types of churches, all different denominations, different big cities, small cities, small rural locations, anywhere where there are students, we want to equip the church. So we run training um, for church leaders, for student workers. So we're working with Abby and Ethan and Tamara, who are maybe... Hey, there we go, there's Ethan. Um, over the last few years, um, providing insight and resources, providing network opportunities for folk to, to connect with people who are also doing student work in other places, and also providing opportunities for churches to get on campus to share the gospel um, and invite people to church, people who perhaps have never been to church, maybe ever never heard of church before. Um, and we're also very passionate about equipping students to share their faith with their friends, with their course mates, with people living in their homes halls and flats um, in a way that makes sense to them and a way that's going to impact uh, those around them. So that is what we do. How can we pray for you? Um, yeah. You individually and, and you and Fusion. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'm going to be speaking today about uh, our need for God and, um, and, and one of the things that we are just so aware of as we work with students and churches across the country is there's just a real increasing openness to, um, to spirituality, not necessarily always yet to the church. They don't necessarily always know the name of Jesus. They don't always necessarily know about God, but there is an openness to something out there that they are looking for. And we recognize, you know, it's a it's a time where I've, I've never seen anything like that. I've been involved with students for, yeah, 18 years now. Um, and it's a moment where we recognize we really want to um, equip the church to make the most of that opportunity. And so I guess praying for me as I lead the team um, and that we would have the wisdom, the insight, the resources to really encourage and equip churches to, 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 yeah, to make the most of this opportunity we have at this time and that we would see many people um, come to faith through that. Um, so, yeah. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Krista and for all you've done in her life and the way you've used her locally in Glasgow and now nationally across Scotland. We pray for her, for Barnaby and for the team that um, you would bless and use them, that you would uh, help them to help local churches like us to seize the mission opportunities that you are giving as we see a harvest field white and ready. Lord, give them insight, give them 
strategic vision, give them hope, give them strength, and use them and use us that many, many young people may come to know and love Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray for Krista now as she preaches to us that you would bless us through her, fill her with your spirit and give us open hearts to the message you would bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're preaching from a stool. It's not a stylistic choice. I'm not uh, <clears throat> trying to replicate a boy band, but I will uh, get onto that a little bit later. Um, I'm aware that as a church, you're near the beginning of a series looking through the book of Romans. Um, and for those of you who might not have been here the past few weeks, I recognize there are probably new students who this might be your very first time here today. Um, the book of Romans is a letter written by Paul to a church in Rome. And this church was made up of people from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. And there was a lot of tension between these two groups of believers. And today we're going to be considering the passage which we've just heard read, which is the conclusion of Paul's first point in this letter. And this point has been focused on the state of humanity and who is or is not to be deemed righteous. Now, when Abby got in touch earlier this year inviting me to preach here, he said the topic is good news, the whole world needs it. And I thought, great, that sounds perfect. I love to talk about the good news we have in Jesus and through my work with students particularly, as well as just being aware of what's going on in general society, it's very obvious to me how much the whole world needs this good news. And so, as I say, I was well up for it. Um, but then I picked up my Bible and I read the passage we've just read. And I was like, hmm, interesting. This, this doesn't sound to me like super good news. If anything, it sounds a, a little bit more like bad news. And perhaps that was your immediate thought as you read it or heard it this morning. And partly that is because it's just part of the bigger picture that Paul is painting about what the good news is. And so, although even though this passage is the conclusion of his first point, it shouldn't be read on its own as if it is his final conclusion. And indeed, the first word of the very next verse is but, and is the start of Paul's next point about how Jesus has made a way for us to be considered righteous in God's sight, which is indeed very good news. However, with all that said, the more I've sat with this passage and prayed about it, read about it, and discussed it with some people, the more I've come to the conclusion that, in my opinion, as well as playing its part in this bigger story, this passage in and of itself actually does hold some really good news. Good news both for those of us who would call ourselves Christians and those who currently wouldn't. But before we get into that, I think it's worth taking a moment to notice the structure of this passage. Uh, first of all, in verse 9, Paul introduces the passage by saying, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And by we at this point, he's referring to the Jewish people. Um, not at all, he says. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. And this term Gentile, for those who might not be familiar, refers to anybody who's not come from a Jewish background. And then in verses 10 through to 18, Paul uses quotations from the scriptures that were available to the people at the time to back up this point that he's just made. 
He specifically quotes from the Psalms, from Isaiah and Ecclesiastes. And what's interesting about the verses that he's quoting is that when we look at them in context, some of them are describing Jewish people and some of them are describing Gentile people. And then in verses 19 and 20, he wraps up this part of his argument with a brief summary. So that's the structure of the passage that we are considering today. And with all that in mind, there are a lot of things you could say about this passage. But in my opinion, when you strip it back to its basic premise, what Paul is trying to communicate is that whether humans know God's law or whether they don't, whether they've tried to follow his law or whether they haven't, their efforts are not enough to make them righteous. Their efforts have not helped them find the way of peace that's mentioned in verse 17. And when we look at this passage in context, I believe we can also say that Paul is saying their efforts have not been enough to bring them salvation. And the fact that this premise is applied to all people throughout all history highlights the fact that this is not because people have not tried hard enough. It's not because they're failing at something they were supposed to be able to do. It's because they're human. And as humans, we were never supposed to be able to save ourselves. And this, although it might not appear it as first, is in fact very good news. And it's good news for so many different reasons, some of which I'm going to encourage us to consider this morning. One of the first reasons it's good news is that it means that our standing before and with God is not defined by our effort. And for those of us who are Christians, we're generally very used to this concept, especially when we think about it in terms of the objective state of our souls, yeah? We're overall aware of and happy to admit that as much as we try, our good deeds are not good enough to match up to an entirely good and perfect God. We're also generally aware of the fact that we all do things at times which result in pain and suffering to others, to the world, and at times to ourselves. As it says in next week's passage, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this idea generally makes sense to us. We understand that by our own efforts, we're unable to become the types of people who in comparison to God would be considered righteous. And following on with this concept, most of us are fairly comfortable with the idea that we need God to do something in order for us to be able to reside in the presence of this righteous, pure, and holy God that we read about in the scriptures. Sometimes we think about this primarily in terms of um, what will happen to us when we die, and sometimes we think about it in terms of our ability to come into the presence of God in our current lives. And both of these things are true, and I believe they are part of what Paul is communicating to the church in Rome. But this word righteous, alongside this concept of salvation that is interlinked with it and threaded through the book of Romans, is not just about the objective state of our souls. As so many of us are no doubt aware, it's about much more than that. And it refers to much more than a mere tr transaction from sinner to saved, from death to life, from being far from God to being close to God. In addition to those things across the Bible, these terms are used in connection to both spiritual and physical matters in both the present life and in the age to come. They're used in relation to both individuals and whole communities and indicate all kinds of things like deliverance, safety, healing, transformation, wholeness, and peace. And these concepts are about God interacting with our lives here and now, not just about our eternal destination. 
And so I'd like to suggest that this passage is um, saying that we not only need the intervention of God to secure our right standing with him, but also that it's highlighting our need for God in our day-to-day lives. Through our faith in Jesus, we have been transformed and we are being transformed. And this passage, amongst other things, is reminding us that we are unable to perform this transformation on our own. It's reminding us that we are unable to find this way of peace without him. And again, I think we get that in the theoretical sense. But I wonder how often we consider what this really means or live like it is really true. I know for me, there have been so many times when I've tried to transform myself trying to find the way of peace on my own and failed and then felt bad about it. Because unintentionally, somehow I have believed that yes, God has made a way for me to be in right standing with him. Yes, he has revealed himself to me and shown himself in, my, in scriptures. And yes, my eternal destiny is secure in him. But now with this knowledge, I had better get on and live my life. I had better muster up the faith that seems to be required of me. I'd better work really hard to forgive that person. I'd better deal with the challenges that come my way by gritting my teeth and keeping my chin up. Sometimes I've also thought if I did more godly activities, then things would be fine. If I only read more scripture, if I went to more Christian meetings, if I spent longer in prayer, then I just might find this elusive way of peace. And with these second set of things, there's nothing wrong with them. And in fact, in the right place, there's a whole lot right with them. But when we don't view them as opportunities for the real and living God to meet us and instead see them as tick box activities that we can control and complete to get us to where we want to be, then, then we've missed the mark. And I don't know about you, but way too often I've believed this try harder, do better gospel when it comes to my day-to-day life and how I'm living. But this passage is saying that gospel is no gospel at all. It's saying that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we attempt to do the right things, we will not, through our own efforts, find the way of peace. We will not receive our salvation. And furthermore, we're not supposed to be able to. And this, this is good news, because it means that it's not all about us. It means that the wholeness and transformation that we want to see in our own lives is not down to our own efforts. It means that rather than being something we need to constantly strive for or earn, it is a gift to receive. It means that we can rest in the arms of the one who loves us more than we could ever know or comprehend, who has more grace and compassion for us than we could ever have for ourselves. It means that we can breathe easy. And again, I think that for most of us, when we think about this concept in the abstract idea, we're on board with it. But what about when we think about it in the context of our real, everyday, often complicated lives? I wonder how often we feel ashamed or like a failure for not being able to navigate the challenges we face on our own. How often we feel like a bad Christian, perhaps, when our best efforts just don't seem to cut it when we feel tossed around by the tragedies and trials of our lives and the lives of those around us, when we can't bring about the changes we want to see in our own attitudes and behaviours. How often I wonder when faced with these things is our initial reaction to try harder rather than to acknowledge that we have not got this and that we need Jesus to help us. 
I know that for me, that's been true more times than I would like. And there are some very understandable reasons that we do this. Acknowledging that we have not got it, that on our own we're not able to cope, is scary. Because it means that it's not within our own ability or control to make everything okay. And that's a hard reality to face. And at various points in our lives, we might face that reality more starkly than others. Um, as I've said, I'm sitting on a stool, and that's not a style choice. It's because um, over the last 15 years, I've had a variety of mobility issues, which have brought with them a whole number of challenges. And in the midst of a particularly difficult season, I remember a moment when I saw the truth of this reality more clearly than I had ever seen it before. I was sitting in my flat and praying about my life, and I felt like God said to me, look around, what do you see? And I was in my mid-twenties at the time, and due to a poorly healed sports injury and various secondary complications, I was only able to walk for about five minutes at the time without being in significant pain. And the doctors were telling me that this was my life and that things would never get any better. And so as I looked around at what God was asking me, this was what I was facing. I saw what the doctors were telling me. I saw the limitations on my life. I saw the pain that I experienced every hour of every day. And I saw the likely impact that all of that would have on my mental and emotional health. And within all of that, the truth that I saw staring back at me was that I was not going to make it on my own. I saw that whatever I did, however hard I tried, it was not going to be enough. I saw that I needed Jesus to make a way for me. And I didn't know what to expect that to look like. Maybe it would be through miraculous healing or through new medical insights or interventions. Maybe it would be through God's presence strengthening me or the provision of people to support me. Maybe it would be through all kinds of different things that I hadn't thought of, but whatever it might look like, I knew that I needed Jesus to make a way. And it was both a very scary moment and at the same time perhaps one of the most transformative moments I've ever had. It was a moment I went from believing in my head to knowing in my heart that I needed Jesus. And I recognize that this is perhaps a bit of an extreme example and not all of us will face moments exactly like that, but my life is the only life I've lived and so it's the only story I have to tell. And what I can say is that 10 years on from that moment, Jesus has made a way for me. There have been highs and there have been lows. I have experienced miraculous healing and I've also suffered new injuries. Sometimes people have helped me and sometimes people have hurt me. Some of the medical support I've received has worked and some of it hasn't. Sometimes I've felt close to God and sometimes I've felt far from God. Sometimes he's done what I hoped or expected in the ways that I hoped or expected and sometimes he hasn't. But through all of that, Jesus has made a way for me to keep going. And more than that, he's helped me to see the good in life as well as the struggle. He's helped me to find purpose and peace and hope and joy in the midst of it all. And so I'm incredibly grateful, both for what God has done in my life and also what he's taught me through the realization that I had that day all those years ago. However, as I mentioned, in spite of all of that, it was a scary moment. Scary because I realized I wasn't going to make it on my own. Scary that as I realized that I needed Jesus to come through for me, I recognized that this would involve me giving up control of my life in a way that I'd never really done before. And choosing to give up control of our lives can be hard. 
it can be really hard. And again, there are a lot of valid reasons for this. So often the world feels uncertain and unstable. Things are changing all the time and we don't know what or who we can trust. And so our natural inclination is to try really hard to control whatever we can. And this is very normal and, and to a degree I would suggest it's not always wrong. Sometimes there are things we do which bring us a measure of security and safety. And if these things are in and of themselves healthy and held in the right place in our hearts and lives, I think that's okay. But with all that said, I'm learning that as I live my life in an uncertain and unstable body, in an uncertain and unstable world, I'm realizing that if I want Jesus to do what only Jesus can do, then I have to surrender to him and allow him to have control of my life, both in the big things and in the small things. And I'm most definitely still on a journey with this. There have been times in my life when I've held God at bay because I've been scared that he will ask more of me than I can offer and more than I can cope with. But what I'm learning is that God does actually know where I'm at and he doesn't ask more of me than what I have to give. I'm learning that my widow's might genuinely is enough. I'm learning that God is good and trustworthy and kind. And through all of it, I'm learning that his ways are better than mine and that he can bring me hope and peace and joy in ways I could never muster or find on my own. And maybe at some point in your life, you've had a moment of stark realization like that. Like me, it might have been sparked by health issues or it might have been something completely different, perhaps to do with work or studies, grief and loss, finances, relationships, maybe even a particular sin you struggle with or a situation you feel trapped in. Or maybe you've never had a specific moment like that. But either way, I would imagine for most of us, there have been times in our lives when their future has looked bleak or uncertain, and we've recognized that trying our hardest isn't gonna be enough. We've realized that we need God. And so for each of us, this passage contains good news. It contains the good news that it's not our fault, that we can't make it on our own. It isn't because we're failing or because there's anything wrong with us. It's because we're human and we were never supposed to make it on our own. We were always supposed to need Jesus. And as I've been thinking about this passage, I've been wondering what might happen if we were able to be a little bit more honest about this if we were willing to admit our need for God, not only to ourselves and the people within our church communities, but also to our friends and our neighbors who don't know Jesus. I think that very often we feel that being a good witness means presenting to the world a shiny, got it all together, wrapped up in a ribbon life, this perfect image. We think it means being able to say, I know Jesus, and so look how great my life is. Or maybe even I once had this struggle a number of years ago, but Jesus has changed everything, and now my life is perfect. But what if, what if these are not the primary types of stories people are actually interested in? What if they're not looking for perfect, got-it-all-together people? Clean-cut before and after testimonies. What if they're in fact looking for people just like them who struggle, who have challenges, but who know a God who loves them and who is with them in the midst of it all? <clears throat> a God who comforts and encourages them, a God who brings them hope and peace and joy in the midst of the challenges they face. 
As I was considering this, I was reminded of a time I was at home with my parents and our garage door was broken. <clears throat> and my dad decided he needed someone to help him fix it. So he called a neighbor to ask if he would come and help him. And the neighbor's free, so he came round and they worked for an hour or so and they fixed the door. And later that day, my dad commented on what happened and he said, I've been trying to connect with this guy for years and he's never had any time for me. But today, we've had a great time together. And I thought about it. In my opinion, it was partly because there was a practical job to be done and it's often easier to connect with people um, in those circumstances. But I think it was actually more than that. As I reflected on it, my conclusion was, up till that point, the only perception this neighbor had of my dad was of an older, got-it-together, religious guy with a nice house, an impressive career, a supportive wife, and well-behaved kids. <laughs> and all that time, there hadn't been much to connect with him on. But as soon as my dad became just a man with a broken carriage door, a man who needed some help to sort his problems, a man who couldn't do it all on his own, then there became a connection between them. On that day, maybe for the first time, I think our neighbor saw my dad as a man just like him. And I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know for sure. But interestingly, I called my parents this week to fact check this story. And they were like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And actually, we went on together to do loads of projects. We got to know about his life and his family. And in fact, the very same thing happened with multiple other neighbors. We had been trying to connect with them, but they hadn't been interested. But when we said we needed help, they opened up our lives to us. And this story doesn't end with mass conversions, but I think it does demonstrate something which we see in society all the time, which is as long as people see us as completely different or other from us, they will struggle to connect with them. Whenever there is that, that perception of the other as different, there is no way to understand each other. And so while I would suggest that all the time we present these perfect, shiny lives, then people are going to struggle to connect with us and also to what we tell them about God. Because there are some people around who seem to have nice, easy lives. And maybe that's a facade and maybe it is their current lived experience. But for the most part, we know that life is not that simple. We all know what's going on in the world and what has happened over the last few years which has made life even harder for many, many people. The stats that are coming out around how many people are struggling in all kinds of areas are staggering. Perhaps most significantly in terms of their mental health, these stories and figures are heartbreaking. And through my work, we've been noticing a shift in many of the attitudes and beliefs amongst the student population. Unlike in years gone by, we're finding that huge numbers of them are acknowledging that they're not okay. They're aware of the fact that they're gonna need help to get through this life. And many of them believe that there is more going on out there than what we can just see and touch. And in addition to that, they believe that if they can tap into that thing, they might just find peace. And I don't know as much about the general adult population as I do about students, but from what I can see, and from the lives of those around me, it seems like these concepts are true for many of them also. And so I wonder what ha might happen if rather than trying to present perfect lives to the people around us, what if we were able to be honest about how the many ways we are just like them? We too have challenges we face and things we struggle with. We too know that we're not okay and that we're gonna need to help to make it through. 
we too know there is something out there that can bring us peace, something that can make us whole. And with all of these similarities in mind, there's just one thing that's different, one thing we can offer, and that's that we know what that thing out there is. We know that it's a person, and that person is Jesus. We know that he's making a difference in our lives, and that he could make a difference in their lives too. I wonder if that might be the kind of testimony that people could connect with, if that might sound like good news that the whole world needs to hear. And so as we come into close, I recognize I've talked about a lot of things this morning. I've talked about how we all need God, not just in terms of the objective state of our souls, but also in terms of our day-to-day lives. I've talked about how this isn't because we failed or because there's something wrong with us, but it's because we're human and we're all supposed to need God. I've talked about how we need to surrender our lives to God, but this can be a scary realization. I've talked about how in spite of that, it's worth it because God is good and kind and can be trusted with our lives. And I've ended by suggesting that if we're able to be a little more honest about all of this to our friends who don't yet know Jesus, then this might help them to connect not only with us, but also to the God that we know. And so before we move on, we're just going to take a minute or so to let all of that settle. Going to have a minute in silence to see out of all of those things, out of the stories I've told and the reflections we've had, what is it that settles? What is it that stands out to us? So you might like to just sit and think in your mind. You might like to ask God to highlight something to you. But either way, I'm not going to ask you to share it with anybody. So I encourage you to be honest um, as to what that is. So we're going to take a minute or two to do that just now, to notice the one thing that particularly stood out and resonated with us.